and welcome to Dairy Dialogue podcast number 74, which is a bit of an odd one, but then these are indeed strange times. Last time I said I'd be recording the podcast last Friday because I'd be in the Netherlands. Well, I'm not. I had planned on doing around a dozen interviews in five days at companies and places from Herenveen in the north to Amersfoort in the middle of the country, the capital Den Haag in the west and the biggest city, Amsterdam. And then an email came in, sorry, with coronavirus, you can't come. And then another, and then another. So five were cancelled. That turned into six, then seven, then 11, which meant it really wasn't an option to travel. Obviously, I was looking forward to meeting some old friends and making some new ones and doing some interesting interviews and videos. But the safety of everyone, of course, comes first. And maybe it's something I can pick up on again later in the year. Let's hope it's all back to normal, whatever normal is, soon. I'm Jim Cornell, editor of Dairy Reporter, and it's been a week where we've seen more events falling to the spreading outbreak, including Interpac, which I planned on attending. Vita Foods is another one that I was going to be at that is also postponed. Foodex is another one of the food events being rescheduled, and in fact, I don't think there are really any events going on anywhere in the world at the moment. I'd planned on six events up to the end of May, but now it looks like that will be zero. Of course, some events that are rescheduling are having a hard time finding alternative dates because the venues might be being used for other things, and it's tough to know when is an appropriate time anyway. So it may be we have a whole load of events around the same time instead of all spread out. It also makes rescheduling tricky for attendees. Some of the airlines that I'm dealing with will allow you to rebook your flights, but only within six months. So if the event is moved to November, you can't really rebook. As well as travel, the restrictions seem to be tightening around the world on a daily basis, so it's very complicated, and these are scary times where all we can do is try and help each other out. Hopefully, wherever you are, you haven't been too adversely affected, or if you have, that you're coping okay, both health-wise and economically, and hopefully it also soon reaches its peak. The declining number of cases in parts of China is definitely encouraging, but clearly there's a long way to go. Before we get to the news, I'd like to thank everyone who registered for and listened to the webinar that we had live last week. If you missed it, you can still hear it by going over to dairyreporter.com and just registering and it will pop up immediately as opposed to having to wait. It will be available for three months so you can listen as many times as you like. Thanks also go to the sponsor, Amcor, and also to our panelists, Maria Sanchez-Meinar from the IDF, Isabel Genie from Amcor, and Aurélie Letortu from Friesland Campina Ingredients. And to the guys in our digital team who put this together, because of course it wouldn't even happen without their expertise. Also, before we get to this week's news, I should tell you who is on the show this week. On the Dairy Dialogue podcast this time, we have three guests as well as our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland at INTLFC Stone. We spoke with Tom Sapers, CEO of Dodoni, about halloumi. Emmanuel Michelot, launch manager at Novozymes regarding the company's newest launch, Safira Fiber. And David Guy, owner of Otti's Yogurt, about the company's yogurt dispenser, which is reducing plastic packaging. 
And so let's get to this week's news, which you may or may not have seen on DairyReporter.com. In Ireland, Arivo has reduced fossil fuel consumption by 80% using GEA equipment. In South Korea, there's a new health claim for lactium. Friesland Campina is looking to reduce CO2 emissions from cows in the Netherlands. Unsurprisingly, the latest dairy report from Rabobank is dedicated to coronavirus. In the US, Clover Sonoma has introduced a fully renewable plant-based milk carton. Bell has jumped into plant-based with the acquisition of All In Foods. And in New Zealand, Sinlay's acquisition of Dairy Works has received the necessary approval. U.S. dairy groups are pressuring the Senate to act on labor reform. Kerry Group is investing in its U.S. food manufacturing facility. There's now a plant-based Milo in Australia, and an Australian study says full-fat dairy is okay for kids. And, of course, there are plenty more, which you can go and see on DairyReporter.com. So let's get on with the show. First up this week is the increasingly popular cheese halloumi. It's certainly spread beyond its native Cyprus to be in vogue in Western Europe and beyond, and one of the leading players in the halloumi market is Dodoni, which has just launched new products into the UK retail market through Marks & Spencer, and we spoke with the company's CEO, Tom Sapers, about that and halloumi in general. Dodoni is um, probably one of the small, least known, but... Um, you know, trying hard to be better known dairy businesses from Greece. It was originally a state-owned company uh, set up in a very poor region in Epirus in the 60s, uh, where there was basically no no economic um, subsistence or possible for, for local farmers. And the government established this plant there to... Basically, the function was to buy milk from the farmers, to grade some sheep and, and go to a farming community there. company grew, you know, over the years, producing the first branded feta. Until then, everybody was producing feta, you know, in their kitchen and with their own sort of sheep and goats uh, and without sort of consistency and quality and, 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 and production methods, etc. The Doni was the first to do so, and also the first to then brand its product as well. But as you know, as it goes over the years, straight-owned companies are not necessarily the best managed companies, and it went towards bankruptcy. And in 2012, the Troika, you know, during the Greek crisis, the the Troika forced the government to sell off these sort of participations. And the company was privatized late 2012. So when we, which is myself and, and my partners, bought the company and have then since then been restructuring it. We export now to over 50 countries around the world. Well, in Greece, we're the number one feta brand, but we're more, more known for producing feta from basically from over 5,000 farmers, which if you understand, we're, we're a relatively small dairy. We, uh, we produce 10,000 tons of feta. We procure the milk from 5,000 farmers, which are mainly artisanal mountain-based farmers. And that gives it the purity of the milk, it's uh, the taste, flavor, and hence in Greece, despite being the most expensive feta in the market, we're, we're, the, biggest, uh, we're the biggest brand and uh, the, the, the largest market share. 
and it is a testament to I think our quality and and you know the the relationship of the Greek people with feta and cheese in general. The, the Greeks consume more cheese per capita than anyone else in the world. We entered into halloumi in 2016 because we felt that that could really fit within the same sort of values and ethos under our brand umbrella, and uh, we've been growing ever since. Not as well known in the UK. Uh, UK over the years has become, of course, a very much a private label market controlled by powerful retailers. And, you know, in, during a period when Greek producers weren't necessarily uh, the strongest financially, they, you know, they all succumbed to participating in the annual tenders and there was a sort of a race down to the bottom. We now are launching our brand in various markets. I mean, in Australia, we're, we've been the number one importer feta for, for many years. Uh, in the Netherlands, Benelux, Spain, US. But the UK has been a difficult market for us. So we're delighted now to come in and to be listed by M&S, which, um, you know, we believe with their focus on quality really matches with, with our ethos. Uh, the Doni, though, has like a niche following. And I think we've been lucky that we got recognized as such by M&S. We're also in Whole Foods and other smaller ethnic markets in in London area. But but mainly, you know, Feta has become a, a, a private label market. Halloumi also, I mean, there were some brands and there are some brands around, but, but very few. And it's it's mainly the power of the retailer that wanted private label. And what's the story behind halloumi itself? Are there different kinds of halloumi? Cypriot halloumi is, you know, Cyprus is where halloumi is, is, is coming from. Now, when you talk about the different halloumis, it's, we get right to the issue of it. The Cypriots haven't necessarily been strong in maintaining their trademarks and protecting their trademarks. So that's how the, law, the trademark got lost. But in, in a way, um, the trademark is something which, in the absence of a PDO standard, is the protection for the Cypriot halloumi. Halloumi is different. Uh, halloumi should be produced with sheep and goat's milk, and more recently got produced also with, with cow's milk inside. Cow's milk obviously is cheaper than sheep and goat's milk, but also has different taste and other um, characteristics, as you know. So a real halloumi should be produced with a minimum of uh, 20% sheep and goat's milk. And that's already a, a, one of the big differentiators with other sort of halloumi-like products that are out in the market and possibly pretty pervasive throughout the whole food service sector in, 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 in the UK, where still in many places you, you, you might buy halloumi on your, for on your plate, but uh, actually what you're being served is, is a, a halloumi-style product, product, which might be 100% made from, from cow's milk. Is that better or good? I, you know, that's up to the consumer. But, you know, we would argue that if you want halloumi and you need to be able to know whether you're getting the real thing or not. So I guess you're you're not only trying to introduce into a new market, but also fighting to some extent those halloumi style products that aren't like the real thing. Yeah, I mean, well, fighting, I mean, it's a it's a big word. At the end of the day, we think the product taste should be superior and it is superior. 
but one needs to create an even playing field. The, if, if the consumer cannot see or differentiate on the pack where it's from and is expecting uh, a product, you know, halloumi tea to come from uh, from Cyprus and what he's getting is uh, a halloumi from Romania or Hungary uh, produced in, in a very different way, not produced with the same quality standards or criteria as for instance, the local Cypriot regulator applies to factories in, in Cyprus. Um, and until last year, it was protected by the trademark. Uh, when the Cyprus authorities lost the trademark, um, and this was just administrative error, uh, the risk started to open up that uh, anyone could produce halloumi. And you know, halloumi is a Cypriot cheese. So just like real champagne is from France, Jersey Royals are from Jersey and Feta is from Greece. So, you know, without securing the trademark, anyone could use the name Halloumi. And, you know, we believe that when, when consumers buy Halloumi, they should be able to at least uh, get what they expect to buy. You know, an authentic product which meets strict standards. And not every, everybody around the world is applying standards or is regulating their, uh, their producers because it's not a product of their country. Whereas in Cyprus, um, we get uh, checked uh, by the veterinary services, by the local authorities, the ministries, that we produce with at least 20% sheep and goat's milk, that we, um, it's not uh, strictly cow's milk. We don't use unnatural ingredients or, or oils in the product, things like that. Has that trademark been reinstated now? or Now, um, anyone selling a product or a cheese called the, the halloumi and puts halloumi on the packaging or on their menu, they must use real halloumi. If they don't, um, they could pursue just like you would be selling a fake Rolex or, um, you know, filling a bowl of uh, wine uh, with the sparkling wine and, and labeling it uh, champagne. Are there differences? Do people do f- flavored halloumi or are there any differences in the halloumis that you would get in Cyprus? Um, in Cyprus, you have really two main categories. So you have the really traditional halloumi, which is made 100% from sheep and goat's milk has a much more stronger uh, taste. I mean, it tastes like real cheese, one, you know, some people might say. Um, and then there's the, what we would call the regular halloumi, which is the 80% cow's milk, 20% sheep and goats. For the export markets, um, soon a lighter version was introduced. At the moment, it's uh, under debate whether the term light halloumi uh, can continue to be used, or so lower fat, Halloumi, and just like with, for instance, feta, uh, one cannot call it light feta because the PDO doesn't allow it to be called light feta. So therefore, you have often, you know, light salad cheese or light Greek cheese. In uh, export markets, also uh, you can find now uh, halloumi with chili, chili and basil, or things like that. Do you develop a lot of new products, or do you just really concentrate on the traditional ones? 
We, we, we concentrate on the traditional ones. We do have some, some new ones, but we, we're, we're struggling to keep up with the demand, to be honest. We built our factory in 2016. Basically, the philosophy was to um, slowly grow sustainably with a number of uh, farmers that we um, were able to, um, to connect to our dairy there. And with the same sort of quality and authenticity values and ethos that we have in Greece to produce a, a real authentic uh, halloumi in Cyprus. That was 2016. We, we now produce close to uh, 5,000 tons of cheese this year. Halloumi has been growing phenomenally around the world. Um, some years even 20% in terms of exports, but the last few years probably are between 12 and 15% on average. In the UK, uh, UK is a huge market, but also outside uh, outside the UK is becoming increasingly popular. And I think it's it's driven by obviously the the Mediter- interest in Mediterranean cuisine, uh, healthy eating. Halloumi is a great alternative for, to meat, it's high in protein, popular with vegetarians, but but also with food lovers in general. So that popularity, yeah, that's that's been driving this growth. And the UK market, obviously, originally uh, was introduced quite quite early on to Alumi through the large Cypriot community that moved here in the 60s and 70s. But uh, we can really say that it's now a, a mainstream cheese, and it's uh, I think one of the most popular continental cheeses consumed in the UK. Danish headquartered company Novozymes launched its very popular Safira product for sugar reduction a few years ago now, and it has just launched another member of the family, Safira Fiber. We spoke with the company's launch manager, Emmanuel Michelot, about the new ingredient and what it can do for dairy products. It's a new uh, lactase uh, called uh, Safira Fiber, and uh, this is a uh what we could say a new addition to our Safira range. And uh, Safira was, uh, is a lactase uh, hydrolyzing lactose into glucose and galactose uh, for producing uh, lactose-free products. Uh, Safira fiber is a new lactase. It's, uh, it has a different functionality. It's uh, used for the production of fiber-enriched dairy products, but also with uh, uh, reduced content of sugar. So basically, the center of fiber is a is a lactase that is converting the lactose, which is the milk sugar, into a gauze fiber. Gauze is a, a stands for galactoglycosaccharides, and uh, it's a you know a carbohydrate which is uh, resistant to the hydrolysis uh, by the digestive enzymes, so it can be claimed as a dietary fiber. And as far as the reduction in sugar, is that does it have the same sugar reduction properties as the original Safira? Well, the, the reduction of sugar is coming from the fact that the lactose is uh, converted into a fiber. Uh, for Safira, uh, which is a traditional lactase, the, the, the sugar reduction is coming from the fact that uh, the reaction is uh, increasing the sweetness. Uh, the, the lactose uh, hydrolyzation into glucose and galactose is, is um, forming sweetness, which is used to reduce uh, uh, some of the added sugar. So it both are about sugar reduction, but uh, uh, using different ways. And this one is 
obviously for the for the fiber content is that was that the reason for developing the new product for the for the fiber part of things yeah fiber is really uh, what has been driving the the development of this product we strongly believe that there is a, a demand uh, from the consumers for this type of uh, product we have made a a consumer survey uh, recently showing that consumers are becoming uh, more aware of the benefits of uh, fibers and they are interested in getting more uh, fibers into their diet in particularly into uh, into dairy products so yes uh, uh, fiber has been really uh, what has been driving the development of this enzyme but uh, dairies are also very interested in the, the sugar reduction element which is also a, an important uh, trend in the market in terms of labeling, I assume it, it's very clean label and it's something that that your customers can pass on to consumers. Yeah, exactly, because it's uh, it's uh, it's about if uh, if you compare to the solution of adding uh, fiber ingredients here, it's a it's a biological solution. It, it's an in situ reaction, which means that there would be less ingredients added, and that means a, cl a cleaner uh, labeling and a natural uh, natural positioning. And I suppose it has two advantages in that respect because you've got the, the fiber and also the reduced sugar and both of those are very important to consumers at the moment. Exactly. I think uh, sugar reduction is really very important as we know uh, at the moment and we see that the interest on fiber is something which is uh, coming. So we believe we are coming at the right time with this, uh, with this new solution. And what kind of dairy products would it be appropriate for? So it can be uh, fermented, but also non-fermented uh, dairy products. Uh, you could easily imagine yogurt, yogurt drinks, uh, enriched in fiber, but also uh, functional milk uh, uh, containing fibers. It can be used in many uh, different type of uh, dairy products, as long as there is uh, lactose in, uh, in the product. Fresh cheese, for example, all these kind of uh, products. Sure. Would it, would it be appropriate in things like chocolate milk? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, this is uh, definitely uh, an interesting uh, application. Uh, this is uh, uh, chocolate milk are intended for kids, and uh, kids are not getting enough uh, fiber in their diet. So you could easily imagine a, a chocolate milk uh, enriched in fiber. Yeah. It seems like it's a great product for for many different applications. And as far as that goes, have you been doing all of the trials? in-house at Novozymes or have you been working with some companies to uh, to trial it? We have uh, done a lot of trials uh, internally on uh, lab scales, but uh, lab scale. But we have also done uh, trials, uh, several trials uh, at uh, customers, uh, so in order to confirm the performance and, and and the interest in our technology. Has it already rolled out yet? I mean, is it being used in any commercial products yet or are you just launching it? Not yet. We have a number of uh, companies which are uh, currently uh, testing the solution. So we, we, we hope to have some uh, some sales soon. The product was launched uh, yesterday. So we have a product available for, for testing. And now we move to another interesting innovation. Consumers are now looking for less packaging, and one UK yoghurt producer, David Guy, who owns Otty's Yoghurt, has come up with a new way of selling it. In one store, there is now a yoghurt dispenser where customers can take in their own container and fill it with yoghurt. And David can tell us the story behind the idea and how it's being received. So could you give me a little bit of background as to how this all came about? 
Well, I grew up on the family dairy farm in southeast Kent. My stepfather's the dairy farmer. I've lived there from about the age of eight. And I've seen how dairy farming's changed over the years. And of course, you know, it's well documented how the pressures on dairy farming um, and particularly the sort of economic pressures have, have really taken their toll on the industry. And in our little microcosm in southeast Kent, I think there were just over 20 dairy farmers in our small valley when I first moved as a child uh, to that area. And then um, slowly over the years, they've all been, um, they've all retired and, and gone out of business. So there's now only one left, which is our dairy farm. While I haven't followed my stepdad into dairy farming, obviously keep a close interest on it. Several years ago, Mum and Jerry decided to diversify to help out the farm. They had a contact in Switzerland through some some agricultural research that uh, Jerry, my stepdad, was was doing over there, and the contact uh, introduced them to the the value added milk processing that goes on in Switzerland, and I think that sort of coincided with uh, a fairly yeah difficult run of the farm, and 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 I think. Um, Mum and Jerry thought, well, this is this is an opportunity to try and perhaps give themselves a bit more financial independence, make some more money out of the milk, the primary product, and so they took the lead from the from the Swiss and decided they start producing cheese and yogurt. So they made their own little uh, milk processing unit on the farm, and they did really well. It sort of caught my interest. I could see that the business was doing really well. They worked really hard. People liked the product. They were able to sell it in the shop they put up on the farm. And while I'd gone in a different direction professionally, I actually went off and became a pilot, a commercial pilot. I could see that uh, if I was to help out on the farm, perhaps getting into the yogurt and, the, uh, and well, particularly for me, the yogurt business would be a way of, um, you know, taking it, taking I guess a stake in in the in the idea and and the farm and the business. And pilots do have a fair bit of spare time, and I sort of put the idea to my parents um, several years ago and said, look, would you mind if I so came in into the yogurt business and and help refine the product, perhaps rebrand it and start uh, marketing it to a wider audience. And they they agreed. And so I took it on from there. And after a little while, Otty's Yogurt was born and we took the business from there. Where is it available currently? Uh, we just sell to a local area in Kent. We've got several retailers, small independent um, deli and farm shop type retailers. We started with uh, a shop called McNade Fine Foods, based in Faversham. I'd say they're the sort of the, the, the sort of farm shop deli leader in the area, and we've got a great partnership with them. They were very happy to to take a local product. There aren't many local uh, dairy products available in the area because most dairy farmers have gone out of business, and they like they like the product, they like the provenance, and we started selling it through McNade, and then um, slowly but surely we built up a few other a few other retail outlets. And uh, we also sell on the farm shop. There's a small farm shop at Ottinge Court Farm. The sales that you mentioned there, are those traditional sales in pots or is this all part of the dispensing system? No, this has all been sales in pots. We, we've only just got into the dispensing system in the last two months. The pots was, uh, I think, an idea we sort of inherited from um, the Swiss when they came and showed us how to make the yogurt. And while it's been successful... We just find that the pots obviously have a, a, a cost to them. There's a labelling cost and there's a sustainability cost. And I think everyone has to try and do their part in uh, reducing plastics. And, and the dispenser really came on as an idea a few months ago. And we've, we've researched it, found the right machine. And hopefully we'll start putting more yoghurt through the dispenser. And 
perhaps eventually we can start leaving the pots and get purely into dispensing. And how did that idea come about? Yogurt's traditionally in pots. How, how did you, was there a, like a light bulb moment or how did it, how did it happen? I'd say the idea morphed over time. We've got a raw milk dispenser at the farm, which we started, I think, about um, seven or eight years ago. Uh, at the time, there were very few milk dispensers, raw milk dispensers uh, in the country. And so it was an element of, uh, of a gamble, but it paid off the, the popularity of our milk dispenser. We call it Milkmate. The popularity's really grown. I think that started the, you know, the idea of yogurt dispensary. We thought, well, if it works for milk, then why can't it work for yogurt? And we had a lot of customers who were saying, look, we love your yogurt. You know, can you find a dispenser for it too? And I think on top of that, there is just this growing tide of awareness on sustainability. You know, our customers are saying to us, we love your product, but how can we get rid of the plastic? Uh, you know, can you change from, from plastic to glass? Can you find a way of, um, of supplying us, you know, without your pots? And, and I think over time, we just thought, listen, we've got to try and find a dispenser for yogurt. Unfortunately, there aren't any dispensers available for yogurt in the same way that you can with, with raw milk. I suppose what we were after initially was a, was a sort of a coin-operated or, or contactless type money, you know, money exchanging dispenser uh, where we could leave, leave, leave it up to customers just to come into our little shed and, and fill themselves up with the yogurt. But there were no machines available. For, for that sort of dispensing so we had to look around and we eventually found uh, autonomous who supplied us with the machine yeah it's probably not something that you go on amazon and type in yogurt dispenser and 500 products come up <laughs> no not at all again that's perhaps one of the advantages of being a pilot so i do get a fair bit of spare time and it, it gives one the opportunity to, to to look around on the internet and see what's there there were several several pieces of equipment, several dispensers available uh, in America and uh, and in Europe, but uh, quite a few of the ones we saw were were, were some hospitality type dispensers which needed quite regular cleaning. And I think the the challenge for us in finding the right dispenser was getting one that would meet the hygiene requirements of the sort of the retail outlets that we're supplying at the right sort of cost. And that, that's, that's, that was the problem. It was finding the most hygienic system uh, that was also easy for shops to use and customers to use. And that's how eventually we found the autonomous Brevio machine. And that, how does it work practically if you're a customer going in? Is it a big unit that, or is it something that the shops can install very easily and, and like do, do they weigh the container and calibrate it yeah it's a fairly big machine it, it's something that one person can lift at a bit of a struggle the machine itself at the moment uh, and we've, we've got one in operation with mcnade fine food at faversham the machine is on the countertop uh, at the deli and the customer comes along to to the person by the counter and either buys a, a vessel or brings their own vessel and that vessel is then zeroed on the scale and then placed underneath the dispenser. And it's just a simple push button, which goes onto an electric peristaltic pump and it dispenses the yogurt. And then the customer's given the amount of yogurt that he or she requires. And then it's taken back to the scales, weighs. So you just pay for what you're receiving in your vessel and then given back to the customer. So it's a very straightforward process. You're using less plastic, less packaging how do you get the um, how do you get the yogurt there? The yogurt's put into uh, plastic bladders uh, before it goes to the shop. So to sort of talk you through the process, the mature yogurt 
is uh, decanted into the 10 litre plastic bladders that fit into the machine. Uh, and that's why it's not a, uh, you know, a complete loss of plastic. We do, we do use an element, but the, the reports from Autonomous, it's, it's, you know, it's a bigger than 70% reduction in plastic. So you're talking about a, a 10 litre plastic bladder that's filled in our little factory. That's then sealed and taken out to the shop. And then the plastic bladder and its little silicon nozzle is loaded into a cage in the, in the dispenser. And the silicon nozzle is fed through the peristaltic pump. You open up the pump, feed in the plastic nozzle, sorry, the silicon nozzle, close up the pump, and you're ready to go. And it's just cut the, the end off the nozzle and um, press the button, and out comes the yogurt on request. And it's a very simple hygienic system. There's no exposure of the product um, from the factory where the bladder's filled uh, until it's loaded into the machine. The dispenser machine itself uh, is refrigerated. It's got a, a temperature control on it. And so it's an extremely easy to use, easy to operate machine, which keeps the process as hygienic as possible. And, and so far, McNaid seem very happy with it. And, and in terms of that, the, the maintenance and the cleaning, is that something, how often does that need to be done or does it need to be done? It does need to be done. Um, so I think McNaid are cleaning it daily. Uh, when the day's finished, the nozzle, the, the silicon nozzle is removed from the peristaltic pump. Um, it's clipped up and then put in with the rest of the bladder, which is all refrigerated. So the whole unit is refrigerated. Um, and then if there's any sort of excess yogurt that perhaps has spilled or splashed onto the actual receiving area at the bottom, then that can be cleaned up, disinfected in, in the usual way. So it's a very, very um, mess-free process. Uh, and I think that was that was the beauty of the design. That's what we struggled to find to start with, was getting... Uh, a machine, a process that would be easy to operate and also hygienic. And so far, McNeid reporting that it's it's been very easy to use. The product is being well received. The customers like the idea. And yeah, so far, so good. You mentioned less packaging. Are you able to pass on any savings to the consumer? Yeah, at the moment, um, it's comparable to the to the other sort of premium brand yogurts, which is where we place ourselves those packaging costs are certainly taken off the price so it's 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 better value for the customers for sure as the idea catches on so um you know the retailers can compete in their own price bracket but certainly from from our perspective we can pass on a much better value yogurt to the retailers and then hopefully they'll choose to to make those same savings onto the customers Obviously, when somebody buys a yogurt in a pot from a store, it has a best before date on it that somebody can then look at and say, oh, I'm not going to eat that, unfortunately. Or they can eat it when it's getting close to the best before date. When they're bringing in their own container or if they've forgotten it, picking one up from the store, how do you address best before dates? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. When we supply the bladder to the retailers, uh, it comes with a use by date. Now, this was, of course, with the question for the retailers. Well, what do we tell the customers? Because once you've dispensed the yogurt, you've uh, exposed the yogurt as it's being dispensed to the outside areas. You have to trust, of course, that the, the customers have got a, a clean vessel and so on. And so this is the difference. We say to people that you've got to use your product um, within um, three to five days. And that just is the same as uh, as other yogurts that you'll see uh, that come prepackaged on the supermarket shelf. So while they all have a shelf life, once they're open, of course, the clock starts ticking. That's the advice that, that we would give to shops and that the shops can pass on to customers. 
you said the feedback has already been pretty good from the, the place that you've got it in. Yeah, it has been. It has been. I think the, the dispenser started off behind the counter at the deli. Uh, and the plan is really to get it out for customers to use themselves. And that's the beauty of the machine. It is very much a machine that you can uh, go up to. You can put your vessel underneath the dispenser and press a button. And you press and hold the button and out comes the yogurt. It's really simple. And actually, customers, we think, are going to really enjoy the experience of just being able to deliver their own yogurt you know it, it, the, it sounds a bit corny but there's just a, it's a bit more of a, a of an experience they're seeing the yogurt it's a process that's easy it, it's quick to do and um, it feels a bit more real and uh, I think that's that's actually an important part of how this uh, you know how this business is going and it'll really sort of meet those you know requirements for for that for the sustainability that those customers are after Right. And do you plan on rolling it out to any other locations? Yeah, we do, Jim. McNaid have just opened a new shop uh, in Ashford, and we're hoping to get a machine in there fairly soon. The feedback's been really good. Uh, we're going to our other existing customers, um, the other existing retailers in Kent, uh, and there's there's definitely interest around there. We would like to, to roll this out as, as far as we can within the county and into London. So we're, we're very optimistic for the future with it. And now it's time for our weekly look at the global dairy markets with Charlie Highland from INCL FC Stone. Hi, Jim. Um, so we continue to have a very challenging situation on the, on the global dairy our dairy markets. Um, obviously, the, the main topic of conversation uh, is the COVID-19 and the impact uh, the virus is having on global demand pictures primarily. There's uh, different kind of uh, situations developing out there. I mean, if you take some of the products such as uh, such as butter, which would have a very strong uh, domestic market within Europe, um, we are still seeing good demand for that product, particularly as, uh, as you know, retail demand is very strong um, due to obviously uh, some households and individuals uh, stockpiling. But also you're seeing some demand hits, particularly from the food service uh, side of the market. So overall, it's, it's, uh, the impact is still a, a quite a negative sentiment where prices are on the futures here are dropping in the last week about a little over 5%. Um, if you look at some of the more export-orientated products, such as uh, skim milk powder, you're seeing even bigger declines. I think worries that the uh, global demand uh, will be weak and obviously logistical challenges will continue to, to play their part. It means that likes of skim milk powder in the futures is down uh, almost 11% on the week. So still a very challenging time. Um, we also had a global dairy trade auction out yesterday, which also proved to be, um, uh, you know, showing pretty negative numbers uh, compared to the last auction. Uh, we've seen kind of uh, overall markets drop um, close to uh, 4%. And I mean, if you look at that uh, as well, you're seeing, um, you know, some, some big drops off in the skim milk powder prices as well. Uh, some of them have dropped uh, 8.1% on average, and um, but but some support coming for some other products such as uh, butter and uh, cheese. So overall, the picture is still very challenging, and um, yeah, we continue to monitor it from here. But but COVID-19 is certainly um, the the main topic of conversation, and likely will continue to be so for the foreseeable future. Thanks, Charlie. We'll talk to you again next week. 
INTL FC Stone provides risk management and margin hedging programs and services, as well as OTC hedging tool and M&A advisory services to the global dairy industry. And that's it for another show. Next week, we won't have any of my interviews from the Netherlands, because there aren't any, but we will have an interview our US reporter Beth Newhart did with NZMP, and perhaps a couple more from our visit to the Salon de Fromage in Paris recently, which already seems like a lifetime ago, considering what's been happening since. As always, if you've got something interesting to share with us, and you'd like to be on the podcast, just connect with us through the dairyreporter.com website, we're always happy to hear from you. Let's hope this crisis passes quickly and that it's an opportunity for people to do genuinely nice things for each other. So please take care, take care of each other, follow the guidelines in place, stay safe, and until next time, thanks for listening.